all, since today is the day we are honoring our graduates, uh, what I want to do today uh, is directly address all of our graduates um, to kind of give you, uh, like, here's what I would tell you as you you go off and graduate from from high school or from college into the real world. so that's what I'm going to be doing today is directly addressing uh, our graduates, uh, but, but also know at the same time that this isn't just for the graduates. This applies broadly to all of us here as well, regardless of age or stage of life. Um, to do that, I want to look at a familiar passage. And it's going to be Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Now, if you don't have one and need one, if you, if you put a hand up, someone in the back would be happy uh, to bring you one. Um, I'm just, I see one hand asking for a Bible. Is there someone? See, Rex, maybe in the back, grab a Bible. So normally we say that, and normally, no, I don't know that anyone ever does it. And then if there is, there is someone. I just happened to see a hand, and she was sitting, and I was like, well, we better get her a Bible. Thank you. <laughs> um, but Romans 12, too, is where we're going. While you're turning there, I just want you uh, to put a picture in your mind before we start. Um, and I want you to think about that image. And the image is, is this. Have you, ever, have you ever been to the ocean, or even a great lake, for that matter, since we live much closer to them? And have you ever stood just like on the edge of the water and looked out over the ocean and just looked at the water that just goes forever. Have you ever just marveled at it? And have you ever found yourself thinking about how big the ocean is and how deep it is? And have you ever found yourself even a little bit scared just thinking about, like, that's a lot of water. And it just goes and goes and goes. And you think about the depth of it. Some of us don't even like to swim in ponds or small lakes because we, don't, we can't see the bottom. We don't know what's under us. But you think about the ocean and how deep it is. And if we're honest, it's a little bit frightening. In case you've never thought about that, let me give you some statistics that will put you in your place next time you go and, and see the ocean. The average depth of the ocean is about 12,100 feet. That's about two and a half miles. So the average depth of the ocean is about two and a half miles deep. The deepest part of the ocean is in the Mariana Trench in the western Pacific Ocean. It's a point called Challenger Deep. Challenger Deep is about 36,200 feet deep. That's about seven miles deep. Now, it's one thing to think about that and Kind of picture it and just imagine seven miles below the water just going down forever. Uh, But it's another thing to experience for yourself uh, the raw power and the depth of the ocean. So have you ever been at the beach and been playing in the waves? And and then you always look for the big wave. And then finally a big one comes. And by our standards, a big wave is like four feet. And you you think you're pretty strong and a pretty good swimmer. And then this four-foot wave comes and just throws you around like a rag doll. And it takes you, you get your bearings finally and you come up. And, and then when you, when you consider that that four foot wave, as powerful as it is, is one infinitude of the raw power of the entire ocean, as big and as deep as it is. 
Having given you that to think about, now let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 for us. Follow along with me. Paul writing this says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, this is probably a familiar passage. We've probably all heard this, read it. Some of us maybe even memorized it. Um, and for good reason, because of, of the picture it gives of the Christian life. Right? This is, if you want to get like just a, a real quick vision for what the Christian life ought to be, just look at these two verses. It gives us a great picture. So what ought the Christian life look like? Well, look, look at verse 1. He tells us the Christian life ought to consist of us as believers laying down our lives as a living sacrifice for the glory of God. And this is our act of spiritual worship. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says something similar similar to this. It says, so whatever, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. So the the picture of the Christian life Paul gives us in verse 1 is that all of life is worship. That we are to, in every given moment and instant, whether we are eating or drinking or sleeping or doing homework or watching TV, we are to be laying down our lives as a living sacrifice for the glory of God. And how does that happen? What does that look like? He tells us in verse 2. What that looks like is being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we do not conform to the patterns of the world, so that we do not walk and live like the rest of the world. So the Christian life ought to be one. As we lay down our lives for the glory of God, as living sacrifices, our lives ought to look different from the rest of the world. They should not conform to the pattern of life that is typical in this world. This happens as we renew our minds by by constantly and daily setting our minds on that which is pure and true and excellent and holy and worthy of praise. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, if you've genuinely believed in Christ and trusted in him alone for your salvation and been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit who now indwells you, This passage should appeal to you. Like, you should read this, and you should say, like, I want that for my life. And if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit is in you, that desire is in you. He's given you that desire for this to be your life right there. So this should resonate with us when we read this. There's something deep within us that should say, yes, I want that. I want my life to look like exactly what he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. But, if you're anything like me, you read these verses and you're on board with them, you're all for them, you're like, yes, let's do this. Let's do this. I want my life to look like that. But all too often, you, you find yourself not living this out. And so you read this passage and it excites you, but there's also a little bit of discouragement and discomfort 
and even anxiety and angst because you read it and you know that it's, it's not happening a lot of the times. You know that all too often your life is not a living sacrifice for the glory of God. You know that all too often your life conforms to the pattern of the world rather than not conforming to it. You know that all too often we fail to renew our minds and we fail to be transformed. And so how then, as, as Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit, how do we see this become a reality in our lives? This, this exhortation that he gives at the beginning of chapter 12. I think the answer lies in one word at the beginning of verse 1. That word is the word, therefore. Right, that word, therefore, is, is hugely important in verse 1. If you, you've been here before, you may have heard me say this before. Whenever, anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should ask what it's there for. What's, it, what's its purpose? What's the, there, what's the there for? Like, what's it, what's it for? What's its purpose? What's it doing? So in this case, what's the therefore? Therefore, it's there to connect his exhortation at the beginning of chapter 12 to what he said at the end of chapter 11. So these commands, these exhortations in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he doesn't just give these in a vacuum. They're not just hanging there in space, not connected to anything else. But using the word therefore, he connects them back to what he said at the end of chapter 11. So the commands he gives at the beginning of chapter 12 are rooted in what he says at the end of chapter 11. So if we really want to get the full force of this command and of this exhortation, we have to look back at the end of chapter 11 at what he says. And so turn back to chapter 11 with me. You probably don't even have to turn the page. We'll just look at the final four verses of chapter 11. Because I think this is what Paul has in mind when he gives us this command at the beginning of chapter 12. Let me go ahead and read those verses for us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Those verses make up something called a doxology. That it literally means it's a, it's a glory saying, a saying of glory. So basically what it is, it's a short song of praise and worship. That's what those, pat, those verses make up at the end of chapter 11. So, so Paul, think of the book of Romans. He's for 11 chapters now. He's been explaining the glory of God revealed in the gospel, explaining the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge and the riches of God. He's been explaining the ways of God and the justice of God. Explaining all these things. And finally, after 11 chapters, he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he just breaks out into this spontaneous song of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And as soon as he finishes that song of praise at the end of chapter 11, he says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. 
You see, worship is the fuel for the fire of the commands he gives at the beginning of chapter 12. Worship of our God is what drives us to lay down our lives as living sacrifices to him for his glory. Worship of our God is what drives us to not conform ourselves to the pattern of this world. Worship is what drives us to renew our minds, and worship is ultimately what transforms us. So we don't look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we don't obey those commands simply by just gritting our teeth and committing to trying really hard. All right, I'm going to wake up this morning. I'm going to not conform to this world today. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to renew my mind. I, I will be transformed. I will lay my life down for the glory of God. That's good to, to make that commitment and to, to do that, to strive for that. However, if it's not rooted in worship, in deep and abiding worship, we will run out of fuel for this and we will find ourselves struggling to make this a reality in our lives, as we so often do. So we obey these commands in chapter 12 as we come to this vision and knowledge and worship of God, just as Paul did at the end of chapter 11 right here. And by the way, worship does not just mean singing songs with music. That's a a big part of it, a big part of what we do here on Sundays. But that's not the whole thing. Worship is a response to who God is. So as we think about God, as we look upon him, upon his matchless glory, as we respond mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically to who he is, we are worshiping. We're ascribing worth to him. We're proclaiming that he is worthy of adoration and of praise. And as we come to see that our God is infinitely worthy of all praise and adoration, we come to worship more. We respond with greater worship. And so if we expect to to see that our God is worthy of all praise, if we expect to grow in our ability to worship in any given moment, we must elevate our thinking about God so that we see him more truly for who he is. We cannot worship God truly until we know him truly, as he has revealed himself in his word. Not our ideas about God, but how he has revealed himself to be. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I would commend that book to you. Um, He's writing about God, and and at one point in the book he says, see if I can get it right, something to the effect of, um, an idol of the mind is just as offensive to God as an idol of the hands. So in other words, we, we think, well, I haven't made an idol out of my hands. I haven't made a golden calf to bow down to worship to. Yet so many of us walk around with idols in our minds because we have these false views of God that are formulated more from our own preferences and desires than how he has revealed himself to us in his word. So instead of worshiping God as those who have been created in his image, we worship a God who we have made to be like in our own image. Where the true knowledge of God falters, so does the true worship of God falter. And so if we want to grow in our worship of God, we must grow in our knowledge of God. As he has revealed himself in his word. If you look at Paul's 
song of praise at the end of chapter 11. Look at some of the things he picks out and praises about God. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. They're not subject to to criticism. They're inscrutable. The mind of the Lord. From him, through him, to him are all things to him be glory forever. Paul doesn't pick out simple, basic truths to, to, to praise here. Paul, he didn't arrive at this point of, of praise, adoration, and worship by just pondering very, very simple, basic truths. He doesn't go, praise God because he just loves me so much. Or praise God because he will always be with me. Or praise God because he gives me strength. All those things are, are true Absolutely true, and praise God for them. However, simple answers, cliches, generalities about God in the long run will not inspire awe in us and will not inspire us to worship deeply. Let me illustrate this for you, going back to the ocean that I had you imagine earlier. If I stand up here and I just tell you the ocean is big and the ocean is deep and the ocean is powerful and I I leave it at that. That's true. That's 100% true and that's good. But that probably doesn't do much to your mind. It probably doesn't stir up any, any kind of feelings in you. It doesn't stir up your mind or thoughts. It just... A factual statement that the ocean is big and the ocean is deep and the ocean is powerful. Now let's say I stand up here and I tell you that the average depth of the ocean is over 12,000 feet. And that the deepest point in the ocean is over 36,000 feet. And I tell you to imagine getting tossed around by a four-foot wave and just to imagine the raw power of the ocean and how that one four-foot wave is just one infinitude of the whole power of the ocean. Which one inspires more awe in you? Which does more to stir up your mind and your heart? Which affects you more? The the simple cliches, the the generalities, the ocean is big, the ocean is deep, true as they may be? No. But as we probe deeper, as we stretch our minds a little bit, and as we get more specific now, all of a sudden we find ourselves in awe of the oceans. This is 36,000 feet deep. We find ourselves in awe, trembling at the raw power and depth of the oceans. I propose that it's the same with God. Simple answers, cliches, and generalities about God are good and true and helpful. We should know them. We should recite them to ourselves. Those should incite praise to some degree in us. However, in the long run, simple answers, cliches, and generalities will not inspire awe and worship in us like big, deep, profound truths about God will. And if we are not inspired and in awe at God, we will not worship him. And if we will not worship him, we will not be compelled to lay our lives down for his glory. We will not renew our minds. We will not be transformed. And we will find ourselves conforming to this world. 
So if we are to actually, seriously, and effectively lay down our lives for the glory of God, if we're to actually live out Romans 12, 1 and 2, we must root that in a deep and profound worship of God. A proper view of God will compel us to lay down our lives as living sacrifices to him and will keep us from conforming to this world. So what do we do? We, we think about God. We set our minds on him. We, we ponder his greatness and his glory. We move beyond our, the simple, simple, shallow, cliche truths that we, that we love so much, and we, we move out. And we have awe inspired in us, just as Paul does here at the end of Romans 11. Let me give you some things to consider about God. Have you ever considered the truth that God is self-existent and eternal? That he is literally not dependent on anyone or anything else for his existence. Whereas all of us, at one point in time, did not exist and are completely and entirely dependent on him for our existence. He exists independently of everything else. He just is. He has existed in eternity past and will exist in the fullness of his Trinitarian glory into eternity future. But even as we talk about this, our language and our minds fall short and we we fail to grasp what exactly this means. Because to say that God is self-existent and eternal doesn't mean that he has just existed forever in the past and forever in the future. It means that he exists completely and entirely outside of time. Try to fathom that tonight when you're falling asleep. It might keep you up at night. He exists outside of time. He is not a bound creature as we are. He is a timeless, self-existent creator. Have you ever considered the omniscience of God? Like Paul says in verse 33, the, the depth of the knowledge of God. Have you ever considered the depth of his knowledge? That he knows all things past, present, and future. That he knows your deepest thoughts and emotions and motives and the the way that those are all intimately connected to one another and what caused them. Have you considered the omnipresence of God, the fact that he is everywhere present at all times, in all places, in the fullness of his being? Have you considered the infinite wisdom of God? In 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Not saying that God has done something foolish, but hypothetically speaking, if God were even capable of doing something foolish, it would be wiser than the wisest thing the wisest man could ever think of. Have you ever considered the immutability of God, this truth that God cannot, does not, and will not change? The truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and always. That there is no new information out there that is going to catch God sleeping. No new information that he is not aware of. If you consider his justice, that everything he does is just and true and fair and right every single time because he is just and righteous. Have you considered his holiness? That he is so absolutely morally perfect and set apart from everything else in the created order 
That if we were to go and stand in his presence without the blood of Christ, trusting in our own works, we would shrivel and writhe in pain, just as the prophet Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. And have you ever considered the depth of the love and grace and mercy of God? That while you were yet a sinner, a child of his wrath, Ephesians 2 says, who could not stand in his holy presence, when he knew every wicked thought and desire and deed that you had committed and would ever commit. Even while we were his enemies, he loved us and sent his son to die for us on the cross. So that through faith alone in the finished work of Christ, we now stand in his holy presence, holy and blameless and above reproach. The love and the death and the grace and the mercy of God. Our view of God is often far too small. And truthfully, our view of God will be too small until that day that we see him face to face. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, that's great and all. God is self-existent. He's immutable. He's holy. That's really, those are really fun words to know. But I really just want some practical advice for going off to college. Or that's cool. God's infinitely wise and omnipresent, but I'm really just struggling with my marriage right now or a certain sin, or a certain circumstance in my life, and I'd really just like some help getting through that right now. We all have very real problems that we're all looking for very real answers to. So let me try to bring this to bear on our lives this morning. Our ultimate goal, as we said at the beginning, Romans 12, 1, 2, that's our ultimate goal, to make that our life, our reality. That we are laying, any given moment, we are laying down our lives for the glory of God. We are not conforming to this world. We are renewing our minds and being transformed. That's our goal for this life. We said that the fuel for that fire is, is worship. And that we, we worship as we see who God is and as we respond to him. So if we really want to follow the commands of Romans 12, 1 and 2, we must come to see who God for who he is, and we must respond to him with praise and worship and adoration, just as Paul did at the end of Romans chapter 11. And as our hearts are filled with awe and worship of God, we will begin to see the Romans 12, 1 and 2 life take shape in our own lives. For whatever circumstance you are struggling with right now, whatever that thing is, that current crisis, or that future crisis that will come someday. Proper worship of God will lead you to, in the midst of that crisis, to be able to lay down your life for his glory and for your joy. It will keep you from conforming to the patterns of this world as they would handle that crisis. It will renew your mind and transform you. It will transform the way you live and handle yourself in the midst of that crisis or whatever the situation may be. A proper view of God will compel us to lay down our lives as living sacrifices to him and will keep us from conforming ourselves to this world. Our view of God has direct bearings on the things of everyday life. And so for you graduates, I don't know, whatever you face in this world, maybe temptation, let's take that. When you go to college and you face the temptations that college has to offer, 
And you, you see it and you, and you feel the full weight of that temptation. Your view of God will directly impact whether or not you succumb to that temptation. When you face that temptation, is your view of God so small such that you will say, I need that pleasure in my life. And so I'm going to pursue and give in to this temptation and do this. Or is your God so infinitely satisfying that when you are faced with even the strongest temptation, you can look away and say, my God is better. I don't need the fleeting pleasures of sin. For I'm satisfied with my Lord and my God. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Your view of God will determine whether or not you succumb to temptation. How about doubt? When you go to college or when you go into the real world and you're faced with doubt, when you're faced with intellectual questions about the Christian faith, is your view of God big enough to sustain those? Or is your view of God so small that you will, that one small intellectual argument from a hostile professor will, will crumble your faith and topple it over? Or is your God big enough to answer the questions, the biggest questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of this life? What happens when we die? Is there any meaning to life? Having gone through that myself, I can assure you there are answers. Our God is big enough to provide coherent, life-giving answers to life's biggest questions. What about when tragedy and suffering hits? When you get that phone call in the middle of the night or that report from the doctor that you wish you never would have gotten and all your your nightmares and your bad dreams are, are coming true. Is your God big enough to be trusted when tragedy happens? Or when life is spinning out of control? Or when you're sitting through a period of sustained suffering in your life? When that happens, will you be able to say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or how about when the the guilt and shame for your your sins and, and failures in the past come back to haunt you and you feel the weight of those on your life? Is your view of God big enough that he has taken that sin, past, present, and future, and paid for it in its entirety at the cross of Jesus Christ? So you are therefore freed from condemnation and from guilt. And you can now walk in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Or how about the lure of the American dream? When you graduate high school or when you graduate college, and all of a sudden you're faced with the, the temptation to succumb to the American dream. Is your God big enough to offer you something better than the American dream? Or is your God so small that you say, I have to pursue the American dream to be satisfied and to make something of my life? 
is your God big enough to give you a desire for something more than just a nice house in a nice neighborhood and a nice job and a nice wife or a nice husband and nice kids who get good grades and a nice dog and nice vacations and a nice retirement. Nothing's wrong with any of those things. But when we make that the goal of our lives, when that's our dream, we'll find that it's empty. Is your God big enough to offer you something better than the supposed American dream? Is your God big enough that when he calls you to something, whether that's to to change your major, transfer schools, is your God big enough for you to say, God, anywhere, anytime, any place, I will go. Our view of God has direct bearings on our everyday life. For you graduates, I want to give you a couple more just very, very practical applications now. So how then, as you, as you go to college or as you go to your job, wherever you're going, how then can we, can we do this? How can we ensure that we are renewing our minds? How can we ensure that we are being given a proper view of God so that we can worship more and then live out this Romans 12, 1 and 2 life? A couple practical things. Find a local church. Not just a Bible study on campus. Not just a campus ministry. Not just a few Christian friends. Find all of those things. All of those things are extremely important. But find a local church that preaches a high view of God according to Scripture. A church that has a high view of God's Word, a high view of God, a high view of the Gospel. All those other things are great, but you need a local church. Second thing, practice the spiritual disciplines. Learn those. Foster them in your life. That's why I gave you that book. Because you can participate in all the campus ministries in the local church, but if you and your worship of God is not sustained by your personal time with the Lord in your personal devotions, your worship will falter, and you will find yourself succumbing to the world and conforming to it. Immerse yourself in God's word and in prayer personally. Let that book be of help to you. Third thing, step out in faith, knowing that your God is infinitely wise that he is sovereign, that he is working all things together according to the counsel of his will, and that for his children, he is working all things together for their good and for his glory. So when you go off to college or to the world, step out in faith, whatever that may be for you. And last thing, ask for help from older, wiser, more mature Christians. There will come a time either in your life after college or during college, when you will hit a time where you just don't know what to do and you need help. And for some of you, maybe the bravest and most courageous thing you can do is to find an older, wiser, more mature believer who has a high view of God, who is filled with worship, who can give you wisdom and counsel. All right, so I I would encourage you, do those things as you go from here. Last thing, and I'll close with this. And worship team, you can come forward. I 
Our goal is to live the Romans 12, 1 and 2 life, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed into an everything, lay down our lives as living sacrifices for the glory of God. And we said that happens as we come to worship God more. We are compelled then to lay down our lives as living sacrifices. The ultimate place to look at his glory, to behold his glory, the place where God's glory is seen most fully, most clearly, most gloriously, most brightly, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the cross of Christ is where the glory of God is revealed most fully. And so as you go out off to, to college or to your jobs, I would urge you, Think on the gospel. Set before yourself the cross of Christ. As we sang in the song, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing. It's then, once we see that, once we come to a knowledge of that, we will see the glory of God become real in our lives. And then, just like the song says, we'll be inspired, compelled to say, how great thou art, and to make that the heart cry of our lives in everyday life and everything that we do. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge that you have. Lord, your ways are inscrutable. We can't criticize them. They're perfect. God, your judgments are unsearchable and perfect. Lord, none of us can be your counselor. We are your humble creation. and Lord, we are not your counselor, but you are ours in your infinite and perfect wisdom. Lord, none of us has given a gift to you that we might be repaid. None of us can put you in our debt. Lord, we know that none of us can earn a place before you. We know that it's only by faith in the finished work of Christ that we can stand before you. Father, we know that all things are from you, that you are the source of all things, the creator of all things. All things are through you. You are the sustainer of all things, the life giver to all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power. And all things are to you. Lord, the purpose of all things is to glorify your name. Let us see your glory and that our lives be laid down for the glory of your name. I pray that for each one of us here in our circumstances, we would learn to do that. I pray that we'd worship in spite of our circumstances, and that we might glorify you through them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.